are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. If you want to open your Bibles tonight to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. The 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. We're talking these days about a revival. You say, Dr. Lincoln, do you think we're going to have another great sweeping revival? I don't know. I don't know. I don't see much evidence of it as I travel around the country. But I'm going to speak tonight on the prerequisites of a genuine revival. I say a genuine revival because I believe if we ask God for a fish, he'll not give us a serpent. If we ask him for bread, he'll not give us a stone. If we ask him for a genuine work of grace, he'll not give us a counterfeit. The story tonight takes us over to the little town in Bethany, the little town of Bethany, where live Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. The Bible doesn't tell us much about this home, whether it was the largest or the smallest, but it does tell us it was a place where Jesus loved to be. And if you tell me tonight you have the finest home in the city and Jesus is not there, then I know it is not the finest. But if you tell me you have the most humble home in the city and it's a place where Jesus is, then I do, I know you do not mind your poverty. One day while Jesus was away from Bethany, there rose a little cloud the size of a man's hand. Lazarus got sick. It continued to spread until it covered the whole sky. Lazarus died. Preparation for burial had to be made very quickly. So they carried Lazarus out and put him in the tomb and rolled a stone to the door of the tomb and then returned to the house. When they returned to the house, everything seemed to speak of Lazarus. As they went from room to room, that was the old couch upon which he'd rested, the old sandals that he had been wearing, the old robe that he had wrapped himself in the old manuscripts that he had been reading. Everything spoke of Lazarus. And then, just when their heart was at the breaking point, someone came rushing in and said, The Master is coming to Bethany. Martha went out to meet him, but Mary sat still in the house. And when Martha met him, she began in that tone of complaint and said, If thou hadst been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said, Where did you put him? She said, he's been dead for four days, and by this time he doesn't smell good. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You believe in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you ever notice the double title of Jesus? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. man who has life doesn't need resurrection. The man who has resurrection doesn't need life. Therefore, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Did you ever notice that no one ever died in the immediate presence of Jesus? Did you notice another thing, that no one ever stayed dead in the immediate presence of Jesus? He never came within the touch of death that there wasn't a resurrection. He stood there and wept and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Listen, Mr. Infidel. Listen, Mr. Modernist. Listen, Mr. Liberalist. 
Don't take that hope away from me. Don't take that hope away from me. Why? Because that hangs a rainbow of hope around the shimmering shoulders of the dying storm of my bereavement. Don't take that away from me. Now let me leave, leave it there for a moment and go back to the beginning. Did you notice when Lazarus got sick, they didn't go themselves? Mary and Martha, I've often, they sent a servant, I've often thought if they had gone themselves and said, Master, Lazarus is sick. If he dies, our home will be saddened. Our hearts will be broken. I think he might have come and stayed the disease and Lazarus might not have died. But they didn't go themselves. They sent a servant. That's the way people expect a revival to come. They're anxious for them to come. They want them to come. If the pastor or the evangelist or the singers, if they can bring it about. But they're not willing to put themselves into it. This city, my friend, and this nation will never be stirred by the masses of people that want a revival. It will never be stirred by the masses of people. It'll be stirred when individual believers here and there begins to feel the weight and the load of it. Then, my friends, you can expect it. But not when the but not by the masses. Did you ever notice it's very hard to enlist people in the church in a revival or in a in a in a movement for God? It's very hard. I often thought if Mary and Martha had gone themselves that Jesus might, might have not tarried and might have come, and Lazarus might not have died, but the servant went. They sent a servant, and Jesus tarried and Lazarus died. And then I want you to notice another thing, that only one of them went after all. Martha went, but Mary sat still in the house. Can't you see Mary sitting there with her hands folded and with her teeth tightly clenched? Martha went to see him. Only one of them went after all. Your church will never be stirred by the masses of the membership that want to see a revival. This city will never be stirred by the masses of people that want a revival. It will come when individual believers here and there begin to pray. Begin to pray like in the revival of 1857. John was a man who entered into a room one day at noon and prayed. Then he returned the next day at noon and was met by another man. And returned the next day and was met by another. Until literally hundreds of men were on their knees in a great noon prayer meeting. Revival broke out. New York was shaken. Philadelphia was stirred. It leaped across the, it leaped across the nation. And Chicago felt the effects of it. And then across the sea, my friend, and Europe felt the effects of revival that was traced to one man upon his knees. To one man upon his knees. Dr. Torrey said, I've given prescription for revival around the world. And wherever it's been accepted, it's never failed to bring revival. He said, let a few people, there need not be many, let just a few people get thoroughly right with God themselves. Unless they do that, nothing else happens. Let them get thoroughly right with God themselves, and then let them covenant to pray until the heavens open and God comes down. And then let them place themselves at his disposal to be used of him when and where he will, and the revival is already on. 
Gypsy Smith said, if you want a revival, get on your knees and take a piece of chalk and put a circle around yourself and ask God to start a revival inside that circle. Listen, I believe in the work of the evangelist with all my heart. A young man said to me the other day, would you advise me to, to become an evangelist? I said, if you want to starve to death, yeah, help yourself. And I said, you'll have the same standing with pastors that chiropractors have with medical doctors. Amen. Let me say this to you, my friends. Let me say this to you, my friends. You say, let a few people, there need not be many, but a few people get thoroughly right with God themselves. Now, just one man, just one man, that's all God's waiting for. I remember reading about Mr. Moody. He said, when he and Mr. Sankey were to go to Scotland, and one man had invited them, and before they were ready, just before they were ready to sail, word came that the man had died. Mr. Moody said to Mr. Sankey, I suppose the door is closed. We'll not go. And then he said, we'll go on, and if God wants the revival, he'll open the door. They landed in Scotland on Sunday morning. A cold rain was, was falling, and a cold wind was blowing. And they went to a little mission church that morning. And there was a lady there that morning who had an invalid sister at home. She heard Mr. Moody. Mr. Moody spoke for them that morning. And she went back and said to her, told her sister about the marvelous meeting that they had. And the power and the blessings of God that was upon the place. And then she said, who preached? She said, a Mr. Moody. She said, a Mr. Moody from America. She said, yes. And then she started clapping her hands and shouting. And she said, I've been reading about Mr. Moody in the papers. And I've been praying that God will let him come to Scotland. And then her sister said, he's coming back to conduct a mission in our church. Mr. Moody went back and started in that little church. And the fire broke out and swept across Scotland and Ireland, and Wales, like the prairie fires, and then London, and then all of Great Britain. And two years they stayed, and he put one hand upon that country, and one upon Great Britain, and preached the love of God and the gentleness of Jesus, until two continents rocked heavenward, my friend. Stayed for two years and then wound up on with over 20,000 people yonder in the great mass meeting in London. Then they came back across the sea. They came back across the sea, went to Philadelphia, remodeled the old railroad, the old railroad station to seat 15,000 people. And for three months he preached the gospel there until literally thousands came to Christ. No, you don't have to have a big start. Let one person, that's all. You know when you'll have a revival, I'll tell you when. When mothers begin to come and say, pray for my children. I keep before me one or two as my great inspiration as a revival, as an evangelist. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Dwight L. Moody. But much as I believe in the work of the evangelist, there isn't one on earth that has power to bring a revival to your soul. If you're going to have a revival in your soul, you'll have to face God for yourself. You'll have to face God for yourself. I want you to notice, my friend, I said only one of them went after all. Martha went, but Mary sat still in the house. Let me notice another thing. 
Martha wasn't fit to talk to Mary. At least she had no influence on her until she had seen Jesus herself. They came and said, the master has come. Mary sat still in the house. But when Martha came back with a new light in her eye, a new spring in her walk, a new light in her face, and a new ring in her her voice, and said, The Master has come and calleth for thee. Some of us may preach and sing and pray and have no effect until we have seen Jesus ourselves. Until we have seen Jesus ourselves. That's the need. I notice what he said. He said he's been dead for four days. She said he's been dead for four days. There are three people in the scriptures whom Jesus raised from the dead. One was the daughter of Jairus that had just died. When they left in search of the master, she was at death's door. As the messenger returned, as they, as they returned, they were met. And the master said, trouble not the, he said, trouble not the master, thy daughter is dead. Jesus strengthened the spirit of the man by saying, Only believe, thou shalt see the glory of God. And together they went in and it raised the young child from the dead and gave it back to his widowed mother. Second was the son of the widow of Nain, whose son had been dead for at least two days and they were on the road to the burial. And Jesus stopped the procession, raised the young man from the dead and gave him back to his widowed mother. The third, my friend, was that of Lazarus. The first prerequisite to a genuine revival is to realize that all of the unsaved are dead in sins and trespasses against God. And they have to be quickened into divine life, absolutely unable to save themselves, as unable as Lazarus was to come out of a tomb. Oh, we got a new philosophy in this country today. That what we need today, they say, is to clean up the world. I don't think you'll ever clean up the world. I'm not trying to clean it up. It's the devil's world. Let him clean it up. I'm trying to get me up with a little crowd to go with me to one that's already cleaned up. Amen. This is the devil's world. Let him run it. Amen. It's too big a job. It's like an old lady. It's like a woman down in the mountains of West Virginia where I came from. They were building a home. they were building a road to pass her car, her cabin, and she said to the little she said she had wall to wall children, and she said now don't you get out and let that tar and get it on you. The little boy got it out and got out there and got it all over him. She had him in there trying to clean him up, and finally she said, Lord, it'd be easier to have another, and would be to clean this and up. I mean, I mean, it's too, big a, it's too big a job to clean it up, amen? Get me up a little crowd to go with me to one that's already cleaned up. It's already cleaned up. But you're going to have to realize that all are dead in sins and trespasses against God. The little boy, girl, that's just come to the years of responsibilities, dead. High school or college young person's dead. Old man or woman that traveled the Thunder River roads of sin for years is dead. One is just as dead as the other, and they have to be quickened upon by the Father Holy Spirit. Oh, I know what the social crowd says. We're going to clean up the world. Better, better roads, bigger and better highways.
Bigger and better highways, bigger and better garbage cans. We clean it up and make it right. They say a man will save himself. And so they're giving most of their attention now to trying to make this a better place for him to develop himself. May I remind you that the first man that was ever in this world had the most, he had the most lovely environment that anyone ever had. Adam. Adam, the first man. You think he's the first man I do. Amen. <laughs> Little two-by squirt said to me not long ago. Came up to me with an Australian sheepdog haircut. Fire <laughs> breeches as tight at the feet as you have to grease them to get his feet on. <laughs> Feeling his upper lip for the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And he said, how old was Adam? I said, old enough to have more sense than you got. Why? Because I said, he, could, he named all the animals, can you? He said, you believe the Bible contains the Word of God? I said, no, I believe it is the Word of God. From the first word in Genesis to the last word in the book of the Revelation, verbally inspired, inherently accurate, the Word of God. He said, but there are so many contradictions, and that was a big one. I said, show me one. Oh, he said, there's plenty. I said, I don't want plenty, just one. And he stood there and sputtered like an arc light. I said, listen, if they had a rope hanging to a limb and a coffin sitting under it, and they were going to hang you if you didn't quote ten verses of the Bible correctly, they'd have to break your neck. You can't quote ten verses of the Bible correctly. He said, the, the Bible is so unscientific, he'd heard that. I think, no, he didn't think it. No, he didn't think it. He heard somebody, he'd Polly Patton what he said. I said, listen, why don't you quit, why don't you quit Polly Patton? If God intended for you to be a, a birdie to put feathers on you. I said, I said, why don't you use your own head, a woodpecker does. Fact of the matter, he didn't have any head, just a neck ran up and a stub hired over. Fact of the matter is, it was just a pimple, it hadn't come to a head yet. <laughs> he didn't have a face, just a neck with a nose on it. I said, you didn't know that Adam was created fresh from the hand of God. You know what? Adam, he was, a, he was the man that God created, then saw it wasn't good for him to be alone, so he opened his side, took a rib, and created Eve. Did you know, did you ever notice what happened in the fall? The curse upon the serpent upon thy belly shalt thou go. The curse, the curse upon... The man upon the woman in childbearing, thy sorrow shall be multiplied, and thy husband shall rule over thee. Why don't you fellas say amen? God knows I'm trying. I'm trying to help you out. They've got, they've got you so hen pecked you roost on the foot of the bed of a night with your head. You know what God said? You know, my niece uh, her, came over from college one day and said, the professor's head. 
that Jesus couldn't have been born of a human mother without a human father, that that was a psychological, a physiological impossibility. I said, well, ring-a-ding-ling. I said, you tell the little peanut-praying, possum-headed, pin-whiskered, rabbit-faced monstrosity that prays our Father which art in a coconut tree, you tell him that I said the first man that ever got here got here without either father or mother. Crack that news now. If the first man got here without father or mother, if God wanted to send his son, born of a human mother without a human father, God could and did do it. He said to the devil, he said, Mr. Devil, I gave you the earth, you weren't satisfied with it. Now you've, you've taken, I, I created a man and a woman, and now you've crept in and you've thwarted my plans again. Now I'll tell you what, Mr. Devil, you took a woman without a man in it, for it was the woman in the transgression. And he said, I'll take a woman without a man in it, and I'll redeem the race. For a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child of the Holy Ghost. Without a man in it. Amen. Without a man in it. Adam was the, was the man. Adam was the first sign. He was the first man that ever furnished the spare parts for the first loudspeaker we ever had. Here I go now. Let me show you something. No, we're not going to clean up this world. We're not going to make it any better. If Adam fell, the whole thing went to mess. It's going to remain that way until he straightens it out. Amen. Oh, you say, Brother Lincoln, what do you mean? I mean this tonight. You'll never, you, you've got to realize that men and women are totally dead and incapable of saving themselves and they have to be quickened upon by divine grace. That's what I'm just, That's one of the prerequisites to revival. That's what we're going to have to have. That's what we're going to have to have. If you could get men and women to see that tonight. Okay, let me show you something else, my friend. He said he... The next thing I want you to notice, he said... And he said, take ye away the stone. He came to the door of the tomb and said, take ye away the stone. Stone the thing that was keeping the dead man in the tomb. They couldn't raise Lazarus from the dead, but they could take the stone out of the way. They could take the hindrances out of the way. You can't save your loved ones, but you can take the hindrances out of the way. There's some things that you may have to roll away. You may have to roll away, my friend. Maybe it's the stone of dishonesty. You may have to roll that out of the way. Maybe it's the stone of no knowledge of the Word of God. Maybe it's the stone of an ungodly temper. You say, I only fly off every once in a while. Well, a shotgun only has to go off once to kill somebody. A lady kept coming to, kept coming to Gypsy Smith and saying, When's John going to get saved? When's John going to get saved? One morning I said to John, Why aren't you a Christian? He said, John, you know, my wife, Gypsy, my wife is a good woman when she's not in one of her fits of temper. When she's not in one of her fits of temper. So he said the next Sunday, she said, when's John going to get saved? I said, when you get saved from your ungodly temper. A few Sunday mornings later, I saw John come in. I gave the invitation. He came down the aisle, put up his hand. I said, tell me about it. 
He said, I was in, you know the big light that's in the hallway in my home? He said, yes. I started fishing the other morning, and I had this on my back. I had my fishing pole tackle on my back, and I caught it in that, and, in that light and pulled it down and broke it into a hundred pieces. And just as the big crash came, she stood at the head of the stairs. I waited for the storm to break. She said, that's all right, dear. We'll get another one. Oh, I said, what happened? She said, Gypsy told me if I could trust Jesus to save me from the sin, I could trust him to save me from the temper. I could trust him to save me from the temper. I remember when my boy was a little fellow, I came in one day, and I wasn't feeling very good. And he did something, and I bawled him out, and he went upstairs and cried himself to sleep. God said to me, you didn't speak right to that boy. I said, I want him to know who's the boss around here. So I went up after a while and slipped a dollar bill in his hand for a piece off. And that didn't touch the spot. I came back and I went back up and picked him up and brought him downstairs and put him on my lap and said, Son, your daddy's a preacher, but I didn't speak right to you a while ago. Won't you forgive me? My wife said, God bless you. I knew you would. When I was taking him away to join the Navy, thank God he didn't burn his cord and go to Canada. When I was taking him away to join the Navy and we were driving along, and I looked over and said to him, Son, your daddy's not always been as good a man as he ought to have been. But I'll be praying for you. And then his big brown eyes filled up with tears and he said, Dad, you're the best man I ever saw. And one night yonder in Akron, Ohio, in a hotel at one o'clock in the morning, my phone rang. My pastor in Florida, 1,100 miles away, said, Dr. Lakin, something terrible happened here. He had told my wife that I'll call Dr. Lakin and she said, well, he'll have to know it. He said something terrible happened. Bill had a wreck and it's fatal. My wife came on the phone and said, Honey, I'll bring his body and meet you in West Virginia. Preachers called in and said, Do you want us to drive your car for you to West Virginia? I said, No, I want to go by myself. There's some things that I want to get straight. And for 300 miles I drove that long road down. I got there and stayed in my home for two days before my wife came with his body from Florida. When she came in, she said, I can never be reconciled. And I said, oh, yes. I said, oh, yes, for 35 years I told people God's grace was sufficient. It's not sufficient for us, then it wasn't sufficient for them. It wasn't sufficient for them. We buried him up on the hill underneath that big oak tree where I could look out of the window of the morning and see his grave. And one morning while the dew was still on the grass, we walked up there, stood beside the, under that big oak tree beside that mound that held all that we ever had. And I put my arm around him and I heard him say, I am the resurrection and the life. You believe in me, though I were dead, yet shall he live. Yet shall he live. Don't, Mr. Modernist, don't take that away from me. Mr. Modernist, Mr. Liberalist, don't take that away from me. Because that hangs a rainbow hope around the shivering shoulders of the dying storm of my bereavement. I am the resurrection. Thank God he's out of the grave and in the glory. Amen. He's out of the grave and he's in the glory and coming back again. 
He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he dangled the key to his girdle and said, I am he that was dead and alive, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of hell, and because I am, you too shall live also. Someone said, I couldn't go to heaven, I, except I went to the Catholic Church. I said, why? I said, St. Peter's got the keys. I said, let old Pete keep them. I've got the door. Thank God. I didn't. You don't mind if I shout a little while, do you? Let me tell you something tonight. He said, roll you away the stone. Then notice something else he said. And Jesus wept. Prerequisite to revival. You'll never have a revival until Mr. Dry Eyes gives way to Mr. Wet Eyes. And we learn once again how to weep for the erring one to lift up the fallen to tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. That's when we'll have it. Jesus looked over the city that he loved and saw it devastated, saw them driven away among the nations and it broke his heart. And he sobbed, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you together as a hen gathered her chicken under her wings, but you would not. You would not, and I can feel his heart throb in it. You'll never have a revival, my friend, until we throw out the lifeline, rescue the perishing down at the cross. Listen, my friend, that we, that's what we need. We need to get back to it and let the devil of respectability not murder our spirituality. That's the thing. The one thing that I've asked, I ask God to never let me lose my tears. Don't ever let me lose my tears. We've got so many more. That is not good manners even to cry at your mother's pew. You know what, when you're going to have revival, when good old mothers bathe their pillows at night with their tears, and then come and stand and say, Pastor, pray for my children. When wives come and say, pray for my husband. I was with you one night in West Logan, West Virginia, when I was 25 years old. We were having services at 10 o'clock of the morning. That morning a lady stood up and said, I want you to pray for Jim. Jim was a big railroad engineer. She said, I want you to pray for him. And I said, he works at night. I said, what time does he get up in the morning? She said, about 10 o'clock. That morning, I, after the service, I went down, walked up the path to his little white cabin on the side of the mountain, and I heard someone, and I looked through the door, and that big Jim sat in his overstuffed chair with his hand on the arms of the chair like that. And this little woman was down on her knees in front of him, looking up to him like that, and the tears dripping off her chin. And she said, Jim, Jim, honey, if you don't get saved, Jim, I'm going to die. If you don't get saved, I'm going to die. That night, big Jim laid off from work. I gave the invitation down the aisle. He came and fell at the altar like a sack of sand and bawled out with his tears and came to God. I was preaching in St. Albans, West Virginia, and a woman got up in the service that morning and said, I want you to pray for my husband. We, she said, I want him saved. And she said, I want him saved today. That night I went to church. They said, the pastor is going up to see so-and-so and he'll be late. He came in after a while and he said, I've just been up to see so-and-so and that was the man. He said, he just got saved. And he's coming tonight and the next morning for the morning service, the lady pulled up on the parking lot got out of her car and came across the parking lot shouting and she said, I told you yesterday's when it was going to be. 
let me see a revival like I saw 50 years ago. Like I saw 50 years ago. We've reared a group of young people today that never saw an old-time revival. An old-time heaven-born Holy Ghost revival. Lady, I was in a meeting not long ago, and a lady came down the aisle holding up her hand. And that crowd looked like they were going to jump out of the window. I pulled up my chair and sat down. I said, help yourself, honey. You can't hurt my meeting. I'm like a freight train. I can uncouple a few cars and kick out a few cars and hook her up and go on again. But I said, watch that ice down the aisle. It's mighty slick. I said, they pulled you around here so long. I want you to have a good time. You know what a lady came up after the service? Had her glasses on a stick. And talked like she had a bunion on her tongue. And said, you know, Dr. Lockin, don't pay any attention to that lady. Said, she's nervous. I said, yeah, she's so nervous she won't drink cocktails, play bridge. She's so nervous she won't dance. I said, you know what this country needs? You know what this church needs? Some more nervous people. I was preaching one night and staying in the hotel, and I was sitting in the lobby of the hotel, and they were having a dance. And this old woman had a shape on her like a concrete mixer. <laughs> if she'd have fallen down, she'd have rocked herself to sleep. She looked like a bale of cotton with a middle band busted. Some little fellow was pushing that old bunion hoof sister around across the floor, and her old back was a wrinkle as a washboard. And she came up to me and said, I'm one of the pillars of the church. I said, you're a pillar sham, that's what you are. She said, do you dance? I said, no, I don't dance. She said, do you play bridge? I said, no, if I want to be a sissy, I'd crochet. She said, you go to the theater? I said, no. Well, she said, that isn't natural. I said, no, because, bless God, I've been born of the supernatural. I'm going to tell you something, my friend. When you get a good case of old-fashioned sky, blue, blood, red, bedrock, river, Jordan, John the Baptist, regeneration, all wool in the yard, wide. It's like the measles, it'll break out on you, Amen. You've got a good case of religion. It's like the measles will break out on you. This of it looks like it's gone in on you. Amen. You know something, my friend? Let me tell you this today. She said, maybe, maybe you haven't been around much. I've been fuddled up under the house hunting eggs, and she'd have been away from home on a vacation. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Jesus wept. I remember Mrs. Lake and I were in Gadsden, Alabama. That's where I am in a meeting now. I flew up here today and will fly back in the morning. And we were, every night I'd go up on the elevator and a little, a beautiful little black girl would say, Good night, Reverend, when I'd get off the elevator. One night we were going up the three of us and she said, Reverend, I'm a sinful girl. Would you pray for me? I said, wait a minute, don't open the door of the... And so we got down on her knees and I took the Bible and showed her how to be saved and we prayed and she trusted Christ. Yeah. Every night when I'd get off the elevator, she'd say, good night, Reverend. 
last day I had preached five times. And I had the thing at the grip put him in the car getting ready to drive all night to go back to Indianapolis. She came along with her of her friends and came over and said, Reverend, my friend here is a sinful girl too. Would you pray for her? I read the Bible and then we got down on the knees on the curb. And the people passing by in the cars and I tried, she trusted Christ. I got in the car. I got in the car. Every muscle nerve in me aching. And then I, and when I got in the car and closed the door, I heard that little girl say, Good night, Red. I started down the road. Every bone in me aching, the devil climbed up and sat down by me and said, You're a big fool. Preaching five times a day and driving all night, and he was about to get the best of me. And I said, Listen, old devil. You go on back to hell where you came from. And I went down the road singing, We'll work till Jesus. We'll be gathered home. Somebody said, Dr. Lincoln, when are you going to quit? Never. Never. Dr. Paul was showing me the other day where they want to bury me on the campus. And I said, son, I'll get you first. Let me tell you something. Somebody said, do you think you'll die? Not this year, don't they? I've always noticed if I live through March, I live the rest of the year. <laughs> hey, I tell you what, I've been trying to figure out where I die. If I ever get that figured out, I'll never go there. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Now, I'm ready, but I don't want to go, but I'm ready. I'm ready, but I'm going to keep holding on to the willows. I'm going to put up an awful argument when the time comes. <laughs> oh, listen to me, my friend. You said, would you be afraid to die? No, I wouldn't be afraid to die. I've been to the water's edge three times and heard the waves lash against the boat. Once when the doctor said, when the doctor put his stethoscope on my heart and then looked at the other doctors and said, gentlemen, he's dead. <laughs> but I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a mess then. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And then he came forth, and then he said, Lucy, you need to be more than raised, you need to be loose from the garments. And then he said, let him go. Don't try to go before you've been raised. Don't try to go before you've been loosed. But raise him and loose him. And then send My brother, just another word or two, and I'll be done. My brother, my mother had six children. Four boys and two girls. Dr. Far Dr. Farwell was introducing me one morning on television. When he finished introducing me, I turned around and said, Jerry, I thank God my mother didn't believe in abortion. You look what the world would have missed. Let me tell you something. My eldest brother had begun to drink and had broken my mother's heart. 
One day I was in a meeting. I was a, I was just a young preacher. I went upstairs while I was staying and sat down and wrote him a letter and said, Claude, don't forget the Lord. I knelt down and prayed and sent it to him. A few weeks later I was home to bury my sister's baby. Walked up through the lawn, walked up through the cemetery and stood under a big tree. He then weighed 200, he then weighed 240 pounds. He put his big arm around me and said, son, I thank God you wrote me that letter that day. I've come back to the Lord now. One night in Roanoke, Virginia, I was sitting in the pastor's study waiting to go out to preach. And the phone rang and they said, it's for you, Mr. Lincoln. And I picked it up and my wife said, honey, she said, get yourself together now. Claude died suddenly this afternoon, 49 years old. I sat down there and wept like a child and went out and preached my sermon, caught the midnight train and came and got off the next afternoon and went out to my sister's home out in the country and here his body was there and his little boy said to me, Uncle Bascom, my daddy said he wanted you to preach his funeral. My mother said, you're not going to, are you? And I said, yes, I can do it better than anybody. I can do it better than anybody. I went in and my sister said, I wish you could have been here night before last. She was at the revival and led a boy to Christ. Amen. Yesterday at noon, I asked him to return thanks. He prayed the most beautiful prayer I ever heard. I went in and stood there a little while beside his coffin and then put my hand on his cold head forehead and said, Claude, how I thank God I wrote you that letter that day. God sent revival to Listen, the saddest moment you'll ever know in this world is the day that you look in the face of one of your loved ones in a coffin that's died without Jesus Christ. An unsaved man, let me say this to you. The most cruel thing you'll ever do to your family is to die and leave them no hope that you are saved. You said, Dr. Lincoln, would you be afraid to die? No, three times I've been to the water's edge and heard the wave lash against the boat. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I remember one night when yonder in Johnson City, Tennessee, when I had this awful pain and the preacher said, I'm going to take you to the hospital. I think you're having, I think you're having a heart attack. I said, let me talk to Ms. Lincoln. I picked up the phone, talked to her, and then I went on. And then after a while, after they had looked at the cardiogram, he looked at that before I saw him. And after I saw him, I said, how does it look? And he said, bad. I said, where am I going? He said, you're going up to intensive care. I went back and called my wife and said, honey, the doctor says I've had a major heart attack. I'm going up to intensive care. And she started to cry. I said, honey, don't you cry. Because if this thing doesn't stop there, I'm going on. But I'm all ready to go. Lost in Calvary slow. And this is going to be the last moving for me. When I move to the sky up in heaven on high, what a wonderful trip that will be. I'm all ready to go. Washed in Calvary slow. That'll be the last moving for me. Yeah. Old lady said, Brother Lincoln, I hope to see you in heaven. I said, it's up to you, because I'm going. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. 
If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.